This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 5th, 2017, the Thoughts and Prayers edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation is here with me in the DC studio. Hello, John. Hi, David. And Emily Bazelon is at, uh, I don't know where you are, Emily. You're in New Haven. At the Yale Studios in New Haven. The Yale Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Yes, exactly. On this week's Gab Fest, the worst mass shooting in modern American history and the political nonchalance of the response to it. Then the worst natural disaster in modern American history and the political nonchalance of the response to that as well. And then the Supreme Court is back. So we'll noodle over the fascinating gerrymandering case that was argued this week. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and two announcements that in case you had forgotten, we have Two live shows coming up on October 25th, a Wednesday in Chicago at the Reskin Theater. We will be doing a live Gab Fest, and we're going to have as a guest Kim Fox, who is the leading prosecutor in Chicago, is going to join us, a reform prosecutor. So that's October 25th in Chicago. There's still some tickets left for that. And then we have our conundrum show, our annual conundrum show, live in Boston at the Wilbur Theater on December 6th. That's going to be capped and punctuated and uh, highlighted by our guests. They might be giants. who will be opening for us and playing throughout the show. So that's going to be a wonderful, super fun evening. You can get tickets to both of those shows, Chicago on October 25th, Boston on December 6th at slate.com slash live. We really hope to see you there. Stephen Paddock murdered almost 60 people at a festival of music in Las Vegas before killing himself. It was, of course, the worst mass shooting, mass murder in modern American history, using an arsenal of legal weapons, some outfitted with legal bump stocks, a phrase none of us had ever heard until this week, bump stocks that effectively turned them into automatic weapons. Paddock fired from his 32nd story hotel room at the Mandalay Bay, indiscriminately murdering and wounding festival goers. At the time that we're taping on Thursday morning, there appears to be no clear reason that he had for committing mass murder other than i suppose a desire to cause sorrow and distress among people and harm them and i think it kind of goes out saying there's going to be no real political response to it emily after newtown which was the the mass murder in which 20 22 children were gunned down at a school 
uh, by somebody who had no business having guns. If there was no political action after that uh, action, I assume there will be nothing that comes out of this. Well, there are reports that Republicans in Congress are talking about, as well as Democrats, I should say, are talking about outlawing bump stocks. That would be a very small and specific piece of legislation, but it would be not nothing. The National Rifle Association so far has been silent on the bump stock idea that's floating around. So maybe they will yet quash it. But when you see people like John Cornyn talking about it, you think, hmm, well, maybe the Republicans could actually take action here. And I would assume myself that Republicans wouldn't be floating this idea if they hadn't gotten some sense from the NRA that it wasn't going to be like the end of their careers if they propose such an idea. John, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's likely to more be more actually of a response here um, than to Newtown because it's, in a sense, legislatively, the path is legislatively more obvious and easier, which is to say the two things people can move to are one, the bump stocks, which we're in. I think it's hard to – there were conflicting reports, but as many as a dozen of the rifles that he had – and the bump stock essentially turns a semi-automatic rifle into something closer to an automatic by using the recoil of the gun to create an automatic burst of fire. And then the other one is that the suppressors or silencers bill that was being pushed by the NRA seems to be now in some, uh, even though it's not related here, seems to be in, have been slowed and, uh, and, and might not happen. Or if it does, it'll happen in a much different way than it would have before this. So... This guy was obviously motivated, patient, uh, and as David said, intent, all we know is really intent on just causing uh, mayhem and sorrow. So, um, you know, if you'd taken the bump stocks away from him, he would have found some other way. That, John, I don't really like that argument. I mean, I it's think not it, an ar- it's that, not an argument. That, it's the, a the, fact. It's yeah, not well, he would have found some no, other but way, the but, the, but the bump stocks meant that the he, stops meant he could people. kill yeah, more yeah, people. Totally. No question. No question. No question. My only point is that if you get rid of those, it doesn't solve the problem of people using uh, weapons that can kill a lot of people quickly. You 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 shouldn't mistake thinking that getting rid of bump stocks are gonna are gonna end. Um, uh, the use of uh, weaponry that can kill a well, lot but, of people. But what's, what's interesting about this is this is the, the one of the very few specific examples where you can say, actually, if you had lacked this piece of equipment, this would have been a much no. less deadly, much less deadly and therefore sure. much less sorrowful T- totally. occasion. Totally. Not to say that he wouldn't have Seems done something. insufficient but necessary to ban bump stocks. Right. That's, that's all I'm trying to say. That's all I'm saying. I do wonder if there will be this is one of these things where there's sort of conversation about it, talk about it, and then, you know, it's, there's a long way from conversation to legislation. If the House and Senate want there to be a long way between conversation and legislation, it will get slowed down and then people will sort of gradually forget about it. Right. So this is an incredibly frustrating issue. I mean, it might be my – it's one of my least favorite issues in American politics because – when people are polled, when Americans are polled, they're in favor of kind of common sense regulations on guns. But because of the might of the NRA in terms of the tens of millions of dollars it pours into congressional races, there's sort of a stranglehold on anything ever happening. And people who are really concerned about maintaining the freedom to have guns vote on this issue, they care much more about it than people generally who are in favor of gun control for 
the you know if you're in favor of kind of common sense gun regulation, it's like on a laundry list of issues, but it's not something that has succeeded in galvanizing its forces in the same way that the Second Amendment I, um, forces. I are think galvanized. I think there's a little bit of a canard when people say, "Oh, it's the NRA has a stranglehold." It's right. not the NRA. It's the fact that there are somewhere between 10 and 50 million Americans who really have an incredibly strong and passionate feelings about gun culture and guns. I mean, I think I saw a figure which said 3% of Americans own 50% of America's guns. It's not that the NRA is, is the, is there. It's that there's a large constituency of people who care a great deal about it. who are probably concentrated in districts that are red districts and Republicans care about. And they are incredibly passionate. They're much more passionate about the issue and much more direct about the issue and much more engaged with the issue than the 250 or 270 million Americans who are skeptical. Right. I mean, I think that is really important as part of it, but I don't think the NRA is relevant. Anyway, go ahead, John. Well, Well, he's not saying it's it's irrelevant at all. He's saying don't don't focus uniquely on it or the money they give because the what's much more passionate in here is what you were describing, Emily, which is the people who care about this, the anti-gun forces. Um, there aren't as many people do, who are equally motivated. Do either of you, and Emily, maybe you take this first, do either of you, I mean, Emily, I think you're somebody who thinks there should be certain categories of gun regulations, common sense regulations around registration around background checks and you know limits on the kinds of weapons that people can have but those are politically unrealistic as far as i can tell so is there anything that you see that can happen in american political life because because big changes in legislation are definitely not going to come at least in that direction they're more likely to come in the you know everyone gets a concealed carry permit uh direction is there anything that that the forces who who favor more gun regulations can look to or can try to do that isn't legislation? Well, I think there's state and city-based legislation that can have an effect, right? I mean, when we see there is this interesting research comparing Connecticut, which made it harder to own a gun, to Missouri, which made it easier, and you see gun deaths go down in Connecticut, and that does not happen in Missouri. So I also think that because the, you know, 10 to 15, 10 to 50 million Americans you were talking about care so deeply about this and, and it's so threatening to the degree that like any um, limitation, it, if you're not a gun owner and you're not steeped in gun culture, I think it's at least for me a little hard to understand why you wouldn't want everyone to have background checks or why, you know, keeping people who are mentally ill or on the terrorist watch list from owning a gun doesn't seem like something that we could do. But people who are opposed to those measures feel like, you know, give an inch, take a mile, that it's this incursion on their personal freedom that's going to end with someone coming to their house and taking their gun away. And given how entrenched that set of concerns are and how divisive it is politically, I'm not sure that, you know, we should have national legislation about it right now, or at least like I'm not I'm not sure it's worth the cost of whatever it would be. And we already saw this with President Obama trying quite desperately to get these kinds of laws passed after Newtown and nothing happened. So if California wants to ban everything, then they should do it. And that's probably the best way to get any actual progress, if you believe in these uh and then but then you do have the question going back to David's point about concealed carry. That's where if the if legislation to allow concealed carry to basically be available in all states, regardless of what the individual state yes. has done, then that is a 
position where a na- it, be- it does become a national conversation. Sorry, David. But no, I was going to say, I, I, I wonder if there's a reverse psychology play here today. So much of what defines people's political beliefs in this country today because of the the partisan sorting that we've done is that if the other side is for it, I'm against it. I wonder if there's a if there's a play where liberals should just massively embrace gun culture. Like you make gun culture, like lots of uncool liberals are like all of a sudden loving it. Like, you know, everyone out buying guns. We are all getting guns. And then it becomes something which no longer becomes part of conservative political identity to be in opposition to. It just becomes something that's in the fabric of the country. Um, and then and then it and then it becomes something which you can start to regulate because it isn't it, it you you lower the temperature on it as an issue. Well, well, somebody would chime in to say that some of the previous gun control measures were in response to the idea that urban African-Americans had too easy access to guns. So that that which is a kind of a version of what, right, you're, actually, of what you're talking about. Yeah. Going to the, the question of this, um, this murderer. Uh, it's very hard to make sense of it. I mean, we don't know. There's no obvious reason this has happened. Does it matter whether we call this terrorism or not? So I always this debate leaves me cold. I have to, like, remind myself every single time what the FBI definition of terrorism is. I always forget it has to do with intimidating um, the country or its citizens and also having a political or social objective. I don't we don't need to call someone a terrorist to condemn a terrible action like this. I'm not really sure what the point is. And because it often gets used in this anti-Muslim and racist way, and then we have to have an argument about why we're only calling the person a terrorist if they, you know, call out Allah Akbar before they shoot. I it does seem to me like it's a kind of cul-de-sac and maybe we should just like scrap it. I think you're, I agree with you. There, there's the etymological question of terrorism, which is and what it actually means. And then there's the way it's used in debate, where it's one of the tactics you use to highlight what is an important part of the way we every time we have one of these debates about rights and particularly this specific debate about guns, we exacerbate all of the underlying problems with the reason we can't talk about these issues. And, and but it's still nevertheless important to play with the idea even as a and because it illuminates something that if we if it were known that this person uh, were an Islamic terrorist or were from a particular country, of course, the reaction would be different. Um, And so what does that mean? What does that mean about the way we react to things? What does it mean that six days after the San Bernardino shooting, then candidate Trump called for a full ban on Muslims, which is, of course, a trampling of rights in the service of safety. So if he does that six days after that shooting, how is that different from uh, what people want to do to limit uh, the Second Amendment rights of Americans in response to this violence? And and using those comparisons might break loose a little bit of understanding. And in that sense, terrorism is kind of maybe useful for a minute to think about that, but more often than not, it's used as a way to kind of win argumentation points, then it kind of loses all meaning and it becomes just another ploy in argumentation, not something that actually has a specific meaning. I don't have a real coherent thought on this terrorism question. I do. The thing that I haunts me about this particular act of cruelty is there's something that is happening to people. And I don't know what and it's happening to basically to guys, to men, that makes them think, that it is a 
a right and good thing to to take the misery and pain and loneliness and suffering that they are feeling and export it. The, something we're doing in society is licensing that, it is giving people the sense that that's okay or that that's a good thing to do. You know, I don't have any smart things to say about it, but it is, it, there's something that's gone terribly awry. Another scary element of this is the creeping sensation that all of the media coverage could be playing into the right, right. weird, dark decisions that people make, that they, they know that there will be, you know, all of the headlines, all of the search for understanding, it's all completely scripted at this point. And I don't know what choice we have because it is newsworthy, but that is kind of a sickening element here. Okay, we'll leave it there. We have a Slate Plus topic for you today for Slate Plus members. What America should hold a national referendum about? We saw a huge referendum in Spain this week in Catalonia. We're going to talk about what would be a useful national referendum for Americans to have. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hurricane Maria is two weeks gone. Puerto Rico remains a mess. Power is out to, I think, still about 95% of the island. It may remain out for some people for up to six months. It will certainly remain out for almost everybody for at least a month. Most Puerto Ricans lack clean water. Food is in short supply. Crops are wrecked. Businesses are destroyed. As we learned today, the pharmaceutical industry, which is the biggest um, export industry in Puerto Rico, it has been devastated by this, and there are shortages of drugs that are uh, looming. Tourism has vanished. President Trump has stopped uh, tweeting insults at the mayor of San Juan, and the U.S. government is is finally starting to deploy resources to help the island recover, or more significant resources to help the island recover. But it's a terrible situation. Puerto Rico is already 70 plus billion dollars in debt to 
hedge fundy creditors. Its infrastructure was already a mess. Congress is not eager to ship a lot of federal funding toward people in a commonwealth who are citizens of the United States, but who are not, who don't vote in uh, the elections that elect them or elect the president. John, is the response that the U.S. has um, has displayed towards Puerto Rico a disgrace? In part, let me um, say one other thing quickly first, though, because I think it connects to the previous comment. You know, the president's uh, choosing at a moment to go after the mayor of uh, of San Juan, who is obviously under enormous stress watching people. I mean, all of the devastation around her and the you can imagine the just existential fury that would come from not getting things for whomever, whatever reason to to then in that moment go after her. And to have previously initiated this divisive multi-day fight over the NFL. When you have something like the shooting in Las Vegas, you, one of the many things, not the first thing, but one of the many things is you realize that for a national leader and for our national conversations, you have to budget your outrage and your divisiveness because things are going to come to you by surprise that are going to split the nation that are going to cause incredible pain, even to, by people who aren't directly uh, affected in any way. And since you know, that's going to happen in one fashion or another, you don't go pick fights. You don't go make situations worse for their own sake, but then you um, sap the kind of general national energy for when a surprise things ha thing happens. And so Puerto Rico to me is um, uh, there's obviously the issue of Puerto Rico, which I'll now quickly turn to, which is itself uh, important, but it also, I think, has this connection to the other things, the other fights the president has chosen to pick in a job where usually you you uh, calm try to calm fights. Um, I think the question with Puerto Rico is it was a spe it's a special case. It's not like Texas and Florida, as you mentioned. It has all the infrastructure issues. The question for me in evaluating the federal response is, and they also had you know you had thousands and thousands of containers full of supplies ready to go, but there were only twenty percent of the truckers available. The roads were wiped out. Special case, but isn't don't we hope isn't the best we hope for our federal response that they have the agility and nimbleness to recognize, hey, this is different than Florida and Texas. And as a result of its being different, here's the different things we're going to do and then to master the moment. And so, in other words, all of the, the, the difficulties that Puerto Rico has had and the, and the collapse inside Puerto Rico that makes this all the more devastating should have been the kind of thing that if we were operating optimally, we'd be saying, wow, they were amazing and able to adapt to the special conditions of Puerto Rico. And I'll just add to that. The thing that kept, keeps striking me is that it took them more than a week to name an on-site commander. And it was impossible not to feel that there was a void in leadership here, that because of all the power failures and the impassibility of the roads, television, and because this is Puerto Rico, American television wasn't covering it to the same degree at all, as was true in Florida and Texas. And so it wasn't real to President Trump because he wasn't seeing it on his TV screens. And there's just something, I'm sorry, shocking about that, that the person who is privy has the most and best information in the world can't respond to something until he sees it on his TV screen because he just doesn't think that it matters and that it's a priority. And then when you add on the layer of, you know, prickly defensive, you know, rat-a-tat tweeting at the mayor of San Juan in a kind of like, how dare you question me? Um, in order to get help from me, you have to kowtow. That's also just like 
a horrifying display of kind of anti-leadership. Do you think that we, as a nation, owe Puerto Rico the same thing that we owe to Maryland or to Hawaii, also an island? Yes, absolutely. There are citizens. And also there's a tortured history here of, you know, colonization and what it means to be a commonwealth and why we have a commonwealth that doesn't have electoral votes and representatives in Congress. It. So you're, you're, are you just as willing to pay higher taxes to um, to bail out the people of Puerto Rico as you would be to pay higher taxes to bail out the people of Massachusetts? Yeah. yeah and I also think that this is like a kind of nutty situation. I think you both are lying, by the way. Sense. I don't believe either of you. Well, I don't, I don't no, believe who, you. That's well, weird. Why not? Why not? You feel Why more would, cultural affinity to people who wait, live in like, every other state in the nation? They I also don't. forget cultural affinity. What about human affinity? Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that people are have people a, are suffering, but, but right, people so, are, and people are suffering to a greater degree there than they would be in states like Florida right, and Texas, where they have local resources and yeah, but and haven't been already. I'm, I'm so less you could will, argue you're more. You should be more. But I'm less willing to for my nation to provide resources to bail out Haiti, which is not part of my nation, than I would be to bail out. Oh God, I wouldn't be to see the devastation and and oh. collapse of life that that happens to those countries in particular. That's what that's part of who we should be as a nation. Well, John, I do, I agree. The human suffering there was much greater than anything any America suffered in any American natural disaster. But the fact is that we put tens or hundreds of billion dollars billions of dollars to recover from a Sandy, a Katrina, a Northridge earthquake, and I think the numbers that we put in for for other countries where there's for, for a tsunami or for Haiti are trivial in comparison. So there's no there's and, and I, I think you would. But you were making a separate case. You were making. Uh, so that's a fact, which is which yeah. can be debated on its own terms. But you were saying that you thought neither of us had the view that we had about. Well, I think I think it's really easy to say in the abstract. Oh, we should we should give as many resources to Haiti. Forget Puerto Rico for a second to Haiti as we should to New York. But I actually don't think that in practice that if any of us were in a deciding role, in a position where where we had the resources of the U.S. government we had to deploy, that we would actually act in that way. I don't think Why? you Why? Could... Because we care less about the people in Haiti or because we would be politicians worried about where our votes were coming from? A mix of both. Yeah. You care I mean, less about I... the people in Haiti because they're not, because the nation is a, is a way we define ourselves. And... Well... And people in New York, are, we see them more, there's more coverage, they're closer to us culturally than they would be. I don't know. I mean, if I could in, have control over my tax dollars or other people's tax dollars, I think I would change how they're spent in any number of ways and there would be lots more foreign aid in there. But apart from all of that, Puerto Rico is not a foreign country. Puerto Rico is the United States of America. And so we should be thinking of it as part of the United States of America and, and treating it accordingly. A few weeks ago, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I think it was actually before the hurricanes. We were talking. We were talking about climate change, and and I, we were talking about how eventually the United States would make a decision not to rebuild a place that was devastated by climate change. And I was I was saying we won't. You know, Miami. We'll just give up on Miami. And I've, believe me, I've heard from you, Miamians. I understand yeah, that you're not happy like about that. that. Um, but I think that day has come. I think that day is here. I think that Puerto Rico is a is as a as a um, as a territory as a commonwealth, we will lack the political will to restore Puerto Rico to be 
what it was. We will lack the funds to do it. Puerto Rico is going to be a poorer society than it was. There will be more outbound migration. People will leave it. It will be, it is a place which, because of this natural disaster that has happened, it is going to be permanently scarred and damaged in a way that I think we're going to see going forward for lots of places in the world. And I don't think we will muster the political will to to spend the resources required to 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 restore it to health. So that's a fascinating question is is what do we owe in advance of the next one? Because presumably you rebuild Puerto Rico up to a you know, you re, let's re, you rebuild or you do it with Miami Beach. Uh, knowing that there's a greater risk that those two places are going to be hit by by weather, and so what do you owe? What do you owe when that's the money you're using to build something that's going to get knocked down again? When that same money could be used going forward for you know, let's say, uh, general research into infectious diseases or whatever other thing in a limited budget? That's a that to me is an is a that's a really fascinating question, which is separate and apart from right somewhere else, higher ground. Which is separate and apart from what do you do to get them the relief and the and the emergency care in the wake of the disaster? Do you, should do that for the conundrum show. Okay. One of the striking things to me about the whole hurricane season that we've had is not just the short attention span of President Trump and his kind of the way he is, as John described it, he's misallotted his outrage and his energy, but all of us that there we're not really. I don't know what's going on in Houston. Houston was suffering from an epic natural disaster a couple of weeks ago. I actually, because I'm a disgraceful citizen, I actually don't know what's going on. I can't remember what Irma did. I don't know if the places that were damaged by Irma, I'm not sure what their recovery is. The media attention to Puerto Rico, there've been, there's been lots of effort and lots of resources, but nowhere near what there have been to other kinds of uh, disasters and other situations. There's so much horror and frustration in the world. And, and, um, I don't know. I, I'm just. It's, I'm struck by. I'm struck by how quickly our attention has moved in a way that I don't think it did with Katrina. Um, well, you also had. It was. I mean, in, in the blunt and cruel and uh, math of it, you just had a, a great deal more deaths than Katrina. I mean, you had right. eighteen hundred people die, and so that's probably. That's just. That would be one factor. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it. it the, the category is a, is, is a little different. Right, and also with these hurricanes. There's just this massive cleanup effort. It's a long slog, right? It's like people's waterlogged houses and the insurance estimates and the rebuilding. Like the news coverage, intense news coverage feeds on high drama and the aftermath of a natural disaster. If if there are not some huge number of deaths, as John's pointing out, it's harder to generate that. It's amazing uh, having studied this for the whistle stop this week, which is about uh, Johnson going to, after Hurricane Betsy in 1965, which is the first kind of presidential moment where a president arrives and uses the moment to show leadership in in the 19- not until 1965 yeah. did that really happen in 1955 and 1950, which are two huge years for hurricanes, like record years. If you look up, they have their own Wikipedia entries. On the front page of the newspapers are stories about the coming hurricanes and where they're going to hit on the East Coast next to stories about Eisenhower being on vacation. Eisenhower is not in any of the hurricane stories in 1955 on the front page. And the stories about him being on vacation are, oh, he's out fishing and he's hunting and he's flying from Pennsylvania to Denver. And no, oh, isn't that neat? There's nobody saying, 
this is an outrage. He's not. And then when the hurricanes hit, there was no federal response really expected. It was basically taken care of by the states and by the Red Cross. Um, and nobody said, oh, this is an outrage. When he went to visit one of the hurricanes, he went to basically say, you need to have a civil defense force that can handle these things when they hit, not I'm here to help you. So um, it's just interesting our national response to disaster and how it's changed just – uh, leave it at that. That's but it goes totally back to fascinating. When was FEMA created? Yeah, during Carter, and even Late. Johnson, even Johnson, when he goes to Hurricane Betsy, which hits the Ninth Ward, he's doing it basically. And David, because you're a fan of Lyndon Johnson on the phone, there's fantastic recordings of him talking to Russell Long. He but does it basically because Russell Long has done him a bunch of favors, and since he's you know taken the taken it in the teeth uh, for Johnson, Johnson feels he owes him one, and so goes down to the Ninth Ward. Basically, politics in that case was what was motivating him, not the desire to be like seen on TV or to be seen as compassionate. But it then sort of kicked off a chain of events that led to what we have now. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's fascinating. It's um, but it goes back to your point about time and attention of the actual present, but also, is it a good thing that we all look to the federal government for responding to these things? Eisenhower's argument was basically it saps something from us at the local level if we just think bad thing will happen. Federal government. Will I would I would commend to you the fantastic piece that Julia Yaffe wrote maybe seven years ago about being in Moscow when there were fires menacing Moscow. And it was about what it was like to live in a country where there was no nationally organized response Response. to natural disaster and how terrifying it is and how the idea that we can rely on local or self-organization is a canard. And that at some point you need some larger authority with resources and a plan to help everybody. I mean, that there can be obviously individual acts of heroism and individual acts of self-organization, but that without this kind of national effort um, or, or some kind of large institutional effort that that it's terrifying and, and unbelievably dangerous is a brilliant piece that Julia wrote. There's a fascinating also little historical side part of this, which is that the civil defense efforts on hurricane preparedness and domestic te- uh, tornado preparedness and all that were really – a way to get people to be in civil defense forces because of the coming invasion by the communists. So that it was like, prepare for your tornado, but really keep yourself fit for when the reds come. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back, SCOTUS. Justice Roberts and the gang got back to work on Monday for what promises to be a dramatic term with bad news almost certainly coming for labor unions and workers interested in labor rights uncertainty for those who would gerrymander and those who would bake cakes. Emily, let's talk, let's sort of limit ourselves. So the, the big, there's a big case coming, which I'm so excited to talk about when it, when it gets closer, which is the masterpiece bake shop. Is that what it's called? Bake shop, masterpiece cake shop, masterpiece cake shop, cake shop, cake case about the cake baker who did not want to bake a cake for a gay wedding. 
but we'll Looks maybe like we'll probably s- the end of November. We'll, s- that we'll save that. We'll That's going to be oh, I have so many, so many questions and thoughts and hypotheticals for you. Can you just go spend a week <laughs> in a bunker preparing? All right, excellent. Uh, but until then, let's start with the big case of this week, which was Gill versus Whitford, the gerrymander case. Uh, brief it for us, please, counselor. Well, so in 2010, there was a census, and after every census, we redistrict in this country. In the 2011 redistricting in the state of Wisconsin, the Republicans controlled both state houses and the governor's office. So they put together what was supposed to be a very secretive process for redrawing their maps. They had some aides kind of scrolled away in a room at a law firm near the Capitol, and they had help from a political scientist at the University of Oklahoma named Keith Gaddy. He was hired to create regression analyses and data that would allow the map makers to easily visualize what would happen depending on how they moved the voters around. So basically, you know, right now, if you're drawing a map and you're trying to maximize partisan advantage, you want to know if you move 200 Republican voters out of this safe district, how safe will it remain? Like how many points would the Republicans have to win by statewide in order to still maintain this particular district? So you want to be able to see the results of wave elections as well as more standard elections and then make decisions about how you distribute your folks to maximum advantage and then how you usually you're trying to concentrate the other party, especially if Republicans are doing the gerrymandering. You want to pack as many Democratic voters into a smaller number of urban districts so that they're not going to be spread out and influencing other elections around the state. So the Republicans did this whole process. There was one day of public hearings. That was the the moment at which the maps were visible to the Democrats for the first time. Republican lawmakers had been signing confidentiality agreements and coming to look in the map room just at their little slice of the map. But the Democrats only found out about it at this one day of public hearings. And then a week later, the maps become law in Wisconsin. And then in the 2012 elections, the Republicans win 60 of 99 seats with less than 50 percent of the vote statewide for the state assembly. So that is an amazing transfer of power, and it basically remains entrenched in 2014 and 2016. And by a number of measures of partisan bias, this Republican map is a real outlier in terms of the degree of gerrymandering. So the legal context for all this is that at the times the Republicans were drawing the maps, there was really no reason to think they were doing anything illegal because the Supreme Court has never struck down a redistricting map for being too partisan in its gerrymandering. There's a whole body of law about racial gerrymandering that we can talk about, but not about gerrymandering by political parties. And the question is whether this case is going to be the moment where the Supreme Court steps in and allows lower courts to start stepping in as well. The state of the law up to this point was that there were four conservatives the last time around, which is like 2004 and also 2006, who were ready to say that the courts had no role at all to play in gerrymandering ever and that these cases should be what's called non-justiciable, like not something that you get to bring a lawsuit about. But Justice Kennedy, while he upheld the maps in those cases, was not willing to shut the door entirely on these claims, and he said he was looking for a workable standard. And so the question is whether since then the quite robust 
development of social science that has talked about partisan bias or what's called partisan asymmetry as the correct standard. This is different from proportional representation. I'm happy to explain why I actually figured this out when I was writing about this, which I'm quite proud of myself about. And then there are a bunch of tests that measure how asymmetrical or how biased the map is. And so at oral argument this week, Justice Kennedy actually didn't ask any questions of the lawyers who are challenging the maps, which was interesting. And he seemed skeptical of the lawyer for the state of Wisconsin. And so there was a kind of hopeful set of stories and coverage about the argument suggesting that maybe Kennedy is open to this workable standard. On the other hand, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch went out of their way to dismiss all the social science as um, what Roberts called gobbledygook and to basically make it seem as if there was no way the courts could ever master this and do a good job of um, refereeing gerrymandering based on the science. That, I just have to say, is just horseshit. There are principled reasons to think that courts shouldn't interfere in these cases, but the notion that the science is gobbledygook and that courts can't handle it is just silly. The same tools you use to make the maps are the tools that judges can use to assess the maps. And now I will finally stop talking. Can I just grab that one little piece? How irritating it is when the standards of the one are called are when depending on the side of the argument you're on, how the standards get just get thrown completely out the window. And so the, that gobbledygook point, even forget this, just in general, uh, yes. just infuriates me in the same way on other issues where people who will search night and day for a workable solution to a problem. Then when the when they're on the other side of the argument, they'll be like, well, too complicated, can't do it. Tramples on rights. That's it. We're, we can't. Sorry, too hard. And then they. Uh, yes. And also science, the whole role of social science or even hard science at the court. This is something I've been really interested in for a while because and I've written about it with regard to Justice Scalia, that there's a way in which conservatives often are trying to take positions in which the social science is on the other side. And so they mock it or they belittle it. Justice Scalia famously, like at a climate change hearing, basically said, like, I can't understand this word. I can't remember. There was some word he misused. Like, I'm not. This isn't my specialty. There is nothing inherent in conservative philosophy that would make it seem ultra skeptical of science. And yet that's what we're seeing repeatedly. Right. Well, I think this goes exactly to John's point, which is that the whole point about the the precision of the gerrymandering is that it's based on on an exactitude that we now have. It's based on science, that demography is much, much better. Our ability to measure, to geographically locate where people are and who they are and identify who they are is much, much better than it is. So that it is, as John said, and you guys both said, it is... The fact is that it is science that has given people the tools to create these precise gerrymandered districts. Right. And Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer made these points at argument, it should be said. Emily, so there are a couple of conservative – I mean, there are a number of conservative claims to to go after. The first one, which I find kind of the most compelling is, you know, Democrats lost themselves these state houses like really badly, even well before these were – as as gerrymanders they are now they were victims of this gerrymandered map because in wisconsin they couldn't hold the state house and they couldn't hold even though it's a state where they should run well and it's a political failure on the part of the democratic party to compete and therefore this is a cost of a, a political defeat 
Right. Well, so part of the reasons the Democrats did so poorly in 2010 in particular had to do with this red map nationwide um, project in which Republicans were really successful at spending money and putting resources into slate legislative races and good for them. That's how politics works. I guess the question is, what should the consequences be, right? I mean, when you control the government, you get to put your policies in place. And so Wisconsin, a purple state, has in some ways like a bright red set of policies like the um, union busting policies that Governor Walker has championed. And there are other examples in the state as well. But do you also get to entrench yourself in power in a way that makes it very hard for the voters to vote you out even when they don't support you? Like, do we want a system in which effectively the party that loses in 2010 then entrenches itself in power for the next 10 years because there's a handicap, right, where like the the, the power party that's out of power would have to win by 10 points or 12 points or 7 points statewide in order to retake a bare majority. I mean, those are real structural issues about the democracy that I think transcend like the kind of whipping that Democrats may deserve for having lost all those state house races in 2010. Another interesting part of this, which I think went to the standing issue, whether these these people even have the right to challenge the maps as a whole, was the First Amendment claim. I wonder if you could talk about that. So, so broadly speaking, the yeah. idea that because people are Democrats because of their their speech, their position, their political beliefs, they're being discriminated against in some fashion. To back up into in equal protection land, we talk about suspect classes, people who are being treated differently for reasons of religion or national origin or race or gender. And we talk also about immutable characteristics, like you can't change those things about yourself. And so they deserve special protection. You can change your religion, but we like for historical reasons have religion in that category. Most of the time, we don't think about being a Democrat or Republican as a protected class. There are like a few nibbles around the edges in the law where there are like employment protections for not getting fired for the basis of your political party. But mostly we don't think that way. The First Amendment theory is another way to conceptualize the kind of differential treatment we're talking about where it is true that if your vote is essentially going to be wasted because you're going to be packed into a district that's 90 percent Democratic, that's happening because of your political beliefs and associations. And so I think that's what Kennedy's First Amendment theory kind of gets at. But then doesn't that take you right back to the the level and extent to which you're being muted? Or does it just accept since you've been pushed out of because the gerrymandering has happened, your political view has been closed? I mean, how do you prove that you haven't been given the right to speak? I Right. Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of the issues here is Usually when you have a legal claim, it's like an on or off switch, right? Like racial gerrymandering either happened or it didn't. With political gerrymandering, the court has to figure out a way probably to say, okay, politics are part of redistricting. The Constitution gives the power to redistrict to the legislature. So we're trying to set boundaries. The best analogy I found when I was writing about this was to boxing, like the idea that boxing is about people hitting each other. We recognize they're going to keep hitting, but they're also referees in boxing who set boundaries and rules around the boxing. So there's like some kind of hitting that is off limits. And that's the kind of thinking that would have to happen here in order for the court to play a role. One of the things that I have enjoyed reading about this, or not enjoyed, but have been um, taken by as I've been reading about it, is 
sometimes this comes actually even from Republicans who talk about it, is is the pernicious effects in the long run of having a highly gerrymandered system. And what it points out is that it means that it, it just increases the level of mistrust and democracy and doubt about the system. It is one of the causes, uh, I think, of legislators, representatives feeling they can ignore constituents, not respond to particular kind of constituents, avoid public events, avoid hearings. And the analogy to the old pocket borough system in England, where you, you know, represent a district, but it basically like you were kind of given it. It was yours. There was no need to be responsive to the people. So the whole idea of a Republican system where you have a people who represent you is that you are then responsive to those people who represent you. Not that you have to do everything that they tell you. That's why you're elected. It's not direct democracy, but that you have to be in some sense responsive to them. And if you have these districts where people don't need to be responsive to a huge class of voters, it undermines the the whole project in the long run. It's really That's corrosive. Right. One reason for the Supreme Court to open this door is that, you know, the fate of our democracy is at stake, to be dramatic about it. We have fewer and fewer competitive races in the U.S. House. And that is not entirely because of gerrymandering, because, you know, the big sort, the way in which people have moved to increasingly live among people who vote like them, that's a factor here. We've talked about that on previous shows. But gerrymandering also plays a role. And when you have fewer competitive races, you have more of a landscape than the one you're talking about, David, and one that's more polarized. And I think for me, it comes back to the idea that like, right now, the Republicans are benefiting more from gerrymandering because they control more state houses. And look, like, if there is no remedy, maybe they'll kind of permanently hold on to that advantage. But there are states in which Democrats have also gerrymandered to the same degree. And when you think of the idea that the party that the voters don't support remains in power, there's something fundamentally messed up about it. Then you start to really feel like the democracy is warping. And I think that is one reason why um, there's a kind of sense of urgency and a reason why this case matters a great deal. So before we close on this topic, any final thoughts, John, Emily? My one final thought would be to remind people that with or without the Supreme Court, states can address gerrymandering. They can appoint nonpartisan commissions to do the redistricting themselves. And in states like Arizona, voters have created those commissions through state referenda. So if you're worried about the legislature being too entrenched in its own um, gerrymandering to, to do that kind of reform, this is something that voters can actually do themselves. And it really is, it's like the shape of redistricting is not something that usually gets people to march in the streets, but it is one of those structural elements that underlies all the decision making that follows. All righty. And now let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you are sitting with a pumpkin spice latte that you have spiked with four or five ounces of, of Everclear, what are you going to be chattering about to your family? That sounds like the most noxious drink ever, which is sad because, boy, do I need a drink this weekend. I have actually had a hard week. I know this will mark me as the person at the party everyone will run from, but I have to talk about another Supreme Court case this week where the court heard arguments, and it's about whether the Federal Arbitration Act can be used in a way that allows employers to make their employees sign arbitration clauses in their contracts that then makes it impossible for those employees to band together to um, pursue a collective action, so like a collective challenge to a workplace practice. 
you know, this whole thing of these binding arbitration agreements that then force people to divide up their legal claims into tiny little individual slices that have no value to any lawyer. It's just a real increasing problem. And it's a little complicated and I guess a little boring, but it's so important. I mean, if workers are stripped of this right to have collective actions, then that means that every time an employer skims a little off the top, doesn't pay some overtime, they're not going to be able to come together in order to address that problem. And so we just increasingly have a system where these arbitration clauses are used to allow employers to cheat people out of things. You know, not huge individual damage claims, but across a whole company, you can have a lot of people being slightly screwed and essentially a situation in which it's very hard to remedy that. It just seems like a real mistake given our current imbalance of power between labor and capital. Yeah. And also the Gorsuch vote will win that one for the employers, right? Exactly. And this is just an example of how pro-corporate the Supreme Court has become and with Gorsuch on the court will continue to be, I fear. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is about the welcome news that it is official that in the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, climbers will be able to compete for gold. Yes. Yeah. So they announced that um, there will be three uh, disciplines. Climbers will compete in sport bouldering and speed climbing. I'm really I'm I'm psyched. It's a very cool. If you um, are interested, in the, one of the ways I've uh, come across this is by following climbers on um, Instagram, which is uh, which is amazing for seeing the outdoor sport climbers. But then people who do competitive climbing indoors, just watching them solve bouldering uh, puzzles, and also then watching speed climbing is amazing. It looks like they're running on horizontal ground. Anyway. So that's good for um, that's good news for all of them and for those of you who can then learn about the sports before you get to twenty twenty. That's wait, are they running amazing. on vertical ground? Yeah, yeah. running on horizontal but, ground. But it looks like they're just like it looks like, like they're, they're just crawling, okay. clambering okay. across uh, level ground, but they're in fact climbing a, vertically. So it's totally freaky. I agree. It's it's uh, it's it's you feel like you you'd be like, no, I can do that because there's no way you somebody could do that with <laughs> such amazing precision, like without it being easier than it might otherwise seem. And then you try and go do it and you are immediately delivered to disappointment. It's climbing one of these things. So I've only done it very little bit, just a tiny bit. And I was terrible at it. But is it one of these things which sort of like mountain biking or downhill biking, which is if you go faster, it's probably better. Like that, that actually going slow takes you out of a rhythm and like that, in fact, the speed, you build up momentum and it gets you going in I the right way. Or I don't not. know about momentum because the m- gravity is working against you, but I definitely think, and this is, I haven't actually climbed for many years now and I wonder if I'll uh, do it again just because I'm out of shape, but there is a flow because what happens is when you get stuck, it's a great lesson for life. You have to just calm down, have perspective and work it, like not go, oh my God, my arms are, my forms are going to cramp. Uh, how am I doing this? Oh my God, I'm up 300 feet in the air. Uh, everybody's watching. Like you need to, to mellow. And, and if you're in flow, you don't, none of that stuff happens. You just, you're just moving mm-hmm. and it's really great. And it's amazing to watch. I have two chatters this week. One um, is self-serving, but also serving you, dear listeners, which is if, you're in New York on October 13th or 14th. It's Atlas Obscura's really marquee event of the year. It's called Into the Veil. We take over 
Greenwood Cemetery, which is one of the most remarkable public spaces in New York. And we have a night of music and performance and dance and readings. It's a beautiful, beautiful evening in a remarkable public space. The the band Survive, which made the music for Stranger Things, won the Emmy, will win a Grammy for that, is going to be performing. My parents are actually going to be reading Shakespearean sonnets in, in one of the spaces. It's an incredibly beautiful event, and it's called Into the Veil. It's, uh, if you go to Atlas Obscura, you can get tickets to it in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn on October 13th and 14th. My other chatter is I just read a great book, which I think is coming out this month, which is called Endurance, and it's by Scott Kelly. And if you are a fan of The Martian, the movie or the book, you will love this book, Endurance, because it's a real-life astronaut story. Scott Kelly is the astronaut, the brother-in-law of Gabby Giffords, and he was on the International Space Station for a year in 2015 and 2016. And it's just a very meticulous, detailed, honest, uh, emotionally forthright, funny, specific account of what it is like to be an astronaut, filled with all kinds of screw-ups and mishaps and inconveniences and irritations and uh, human touches, the bits about how crappy the Soviet part of the space station are, are amazing, the bits about sort of CO2 and how if the CO2 level gets too high, you become a monster, are great. It's a tremendously good book. And I tore through it, Endurance by Scott Kelly. That's our show for today. Jocelyn Frank produces The Political Gab Fest. Izzy Road researches The Political Gab Fest. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. Very soon, we'll be asking you for your conundrums on Twitter, too. So prep your conundrums. Uh, but follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. It's good, good. There's lots of good stuff there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.